The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. I've struggled a little bit in preparing the, the sermon this morning because, because I could preach a sermon about sex like with my eyes closed and one hand behind, tied behind my back, right? Because, and, and the thing is that we, probably most of us in this room could. If you've been around church for very long, you kind of know like the sermon on sex. And it's going to be, hey, this is the bad stuff, don't do this stuff, and you guys need to like, you know, keep it in your pants basically. And depending on whatever setting you're in, you know, they'll phrase it different ways. You know, if you're in a, a you know, kind of an older church setting, they'll say it nice. If you're with the teenagers, they'll kind of get crass sometimes. But it's basically keep it in your pants. You know, if, if, you're, if you're single, don't do it. If you're married and you're looking at somebody that has a ring that doesn't match yours, stay away from it. Just don't go there. And that, the, the, the thing is that, like, I mean, that's, all that is, like, is, is true. It's good stuff. But, um, the problem has been that that has often been the only story the church has given in regards to sex. It's just said, hey, if you're single, don't do it. If you're married, don't look around. And it has kind of stopped there. And so that's the reason that you and I could, could, could all get up here and get the story like, don't have sex if, with people that you're not married to and do have sex with people you are, but, but, did not, but it was kind of in there. In fact, I've heard pastors talk about how uh, they that they have gotten up in their church, did a series on adultery and having, mar- having sex outside of marriage, and just like in the next couple months, it just goes crazy. Like people just start having sex with other people's wives and husbands because, you're, you're, because, because the, the problem is, as Christians, we know what we are not supposed to do, and we know what we're supposed to do, but the, the problem is we're still doing it. The problem is that we, are, we live in a sexually charged society, and it has drastically affected the way that we think about sex. And so what I'm going to try to do in a very, in a very, very, like 30,000 kind of feet level this morning is just kind of give an overview about how how do you and I, and this is, this is living room intimate setting here, how do you and I think about sex? And where do we get that from? All right, so how do you and I think about sex and where do we get that from? So there's, like, there's lots of different kind of ways that cult, different cultures think about sex, but there's kind of three in our culture, kind of three predominant ways that we tend to think about sex. And one way is it's called, it's called realism. And that's where, uh, where we view sex as like any other appetite that we would have. Like you get thirsty, you get hungry, you have to take a poo in the morning, you get a beam in the a.m., that's, what, that's, 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 the, that's the way I roll. You get up in the morning, you got to take a pee, you get hungry, you're going to eat. And, and like that's just your bodily functions, and sex is one of those functions. It's just like a necessary function. So just like any other part of like any other desire or hunger or drive that your body has, if you don't indulge it too much, it'll be okay. So you, you eat, but you eat in moderation. You, you, know, you drink, but you drink in moderation. 
I don't know the, the correlation to using the bathroom, but you know, I'm sure it can, you can get off base there somehow. I don't know. But you, you do it all. I mean, I guess if, you, I mean, you know, if you're in the bathroom too, too much, there's something wrong. But the same, same way with sex. So if you're like, if, as long as you keep your appetite under control and you do it in moderation, then that's okay. It's just like an like a animalistic function that we have. Just as we have to have, after we have pee and poop and eat and drink, we have to have sex. And so that's, that's called realism. Another view of sex is called uh, Platonism, and that comes from a dude named Plato, which uh, you guys probably know more about than I do. But he had this sort of this sort of the whole Greek philosophy of that there's this spiritual realm and there's this physical realm, and the and the spiritual realm is like the good realm, and the physical realm is kind of messed up. I mean, because you look around the earth and you see how like. There's bad stuff happening. So the way they described it is you have this good realm and then you have this kind of messed up physical realm. And sex is a part of that. And so sex is kind of in itself is kind of dirty, is kind of messed up, is kind of dark. It's, a, it's kind of like a necessary evil. Like we have to do it in order to procreate and have children, but that's really the only purpose that it should have. And, the, and one problem that happened was whenever... Uh, the early church fathers kind of had adopted that view. So this is after that Jesus and his apostles, like the first kind of church leaders after them, had that kind of that Greek view of like there's this spiritual realm that's good, this physical realm is bad, and sex is part of that. So it's inherent in sort of some, some of Christianity's teaching through the years that, Christ, that, that sex is kind, of, it's kind of bad. And the only real purpose is supposed to supposed to serve is for a, a husband and wife to make a baby, and that's kind of the only purpose that it has in that. So, but that's kind of a, a view in society. And then the third view uh, would be what we call romanticism, and that's, that's a fairly, fairly recent addition to society. I say recent, like go back thousands of years, people didn't think about, uh, about love and romance in the same way that we think about it. And so in our realm, in our society, the, the, the fact that you love somebody is the, is, is the ticket that makes all things good, right? So, so like, if you're in a relationship with somebody, married or not, and you meet your soulmate, then you deserve to be with your soulmate because you love them so very much, and love triumphs over everything. Even if not a situation like that, you're, the, the idea of love just fills our songs and our literature and our movies, and we're looking for true love and beautiful love. Like that's what we're longing for. And, is, and if you have love, then that makes everything all right. That, but the problem with that is that whenever you fall out of love, and I don't know if you've ever been in a relationship long enough or a marriage long enough to fall out of love, then then it's over and you kind of pack up your bags and you move on, whether it's a girlfriend or a boyfriend or somebody you're just checking out or, or even a marriage. When the love is gone, what? You just close up the marriage and you move on. So those are kind of the three predominant ideas that have influenced our idea about sex. So sex is okay if I love somebody. That then you know, what, that We teach our kids now. We don't teach them abstinence before marriage, we teach them, make sure that you are, uh, make, make sure that you actually love them. Save yourself, not for marriage, but save yourself for somebody that actually loves you and that you actually love. You don't want to mess up your first time is what is kind of our, kind of what our teenagers hear these days. And so romantic, romanticism, Platonism, and realism, sort of the kind of three big ideals about love. And so all of us in this room 
have somehow been affected by one or more of those ideals about thinking about love and sex. All of us have been have been influenced in that way, but God has some different thoughts. So let's look it back again. Every, every, the past three weeks about women, about men, and about sex, we're starting back in Genesis and we're working our way forward. And that's because we need to go back to the beginning and see where manhood started, see where womanhood started, see where sex started to see what God thinks about all three of these things. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Genesis chapter 1. Hopefully I don't have the verses all mixed up on the slides like I did last week. If you don't have your Bible, poor Hudson, he was like, it said Genesis and it was Ephesians and things were all crazy. It's already messing up anyway. It's kind of crashed already once this morning, so we'll see how this rolls. Uh, Genesis 1, let's look at verse 26. So God has created the whole, he's, he's created the world. He's created the, the waters and the light. He's created uh, an, animals. He separated night and day and d- did all that stuff. And then in verse 26, after he's created uh, the livestock and all the creeping things on the earth, and, and it gets in verse 26, he says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So, Again, we need to stop there, and as we think about manhood and womanhood the past two weeks, wives and husbands, and we think today about sex, we need to start off from the standpoint that when we talk about sex, we talk about your idea about sex and your idea about sex with other people, because that's what we're talking about, right? It's not talking about like sex is like just some abstract idea. It's talking about you having sex with other people. What does that look like? What is it supposed to be about? The first bedrock of all of that is that all of mankind are created in the image of God. That you had the God's DNA, if you will, you have his thumbprint upon you that he, that he somehow fast, fashioned into mankind, man and woman, his imprint, his, his signature, his, his DNA. You know, like, like, like have you, you seen Sophia running around? Like, she's a little mini Megan. She's like fashioned with the imprint of Megan upon her. We call her a little mini me because she acts like Megan, looks like Megan, runs around like her. Like, she's like her little shadow. And you and I have that kind of imprint of God upon us where he put his image upon us. And so from the very beginning, we think about manhood and womanhood, wives and husbands, you think about sex, you have to start with the, with the, with the bedrock, with the foundation that God has created you and all the people around you that you're thinking about sex with. He's created all of them in his image. That should be the very beginning of our thoughts about sex and about man in general. Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image and in the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. So equally fashioned in the image of God. Verse 28, and God blessed them and God said to them, this is awesome, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed and its fruit. You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the field, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that is the breath of life." I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was what? 
It was very good. So it was very interesting. The other days, he says that he creates the night and the day, and he says it was good. He creates the heavens, and uh, he creates the earth, and he creates the water. He says it was good. He creates the, the fish and the birds and the animals, and each day he says it was good, and then he gets to the very end, the last day, sixth day, he creates man, and he says what? It is very good. He created man and woman, put them in the garden, Gave them dominion so they had a cushy corner job, executive job over all of creation. Man and woman created in the garden. Let's see what it looked like in the garden. Look at chapter 2, verse 7, and then we're going to look at uh, verses 18 through 25. And the Lord God formed the man. I just want to show this when you talk about the image of God. And the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living creature. Think about that. The thing that set us in motion as beings is that God breathed his breath, his breath, the breath of life into us. Look at verse 18. And the Lord God said, so he created man, he's in the garden, he's alone, he's over all, everything, he's, he's got a cushy job, he's in charge of all creation, he told him, be fruitful and multiply, But then he says, it's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. We talked about the past two weeks, how man and woman are made to to go together, made to click together, that man and wife, man and woman are made incomplete, and they need each other to click in for each other. Now, out of the ground, the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was his name, so he was in charge. The man gave names to all livestock. I wonder, like, God was thinking, like, that's a really stupid name, but I'm going to, you know, my, my son Adam, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to you know, kind of pat him on the head. You're doing well, Adam. Um, the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the fe- heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam... It was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man, and while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up his place with flesh. And the rib the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Can you imagine this moment? Man's in the garden. He's been looking at, like, zebras and cows and raccoons. And, you know, it's pretty cool. It was, I mean... I mean, it's pretty awesome. He's, he's chilling. He's in charge of all these cre- creatures. He's getting to name them. He, so he sees them pass by. That's what he sees. You know, a hippopotamus and a giraffe over here. That's, that's cool. But all of a sudden, like, God tells him it's time to take a nap. And he wakes up from the nap. Like, something's missing from his side. And God, like, the first wedding ceremony brings in the woman into the garden. Can you imagine how awesome that would have been? How Adam would have found out some things about himself that he didn't know about before. Because he's, he's standing naked in the garden, and into the garden comes a naked woman in all her resplendent glory. I mean, God fashioned a woman to be beautiful and to showcase that his beauty in a way that man does not and cannot. And he parades her into the garden, and man Adam sees her from across the garden. It would be like one of those, like, the slow motion, and you're, like, running to each other, and there's, like, birds, and there's music, and there's, like, fireworks going off. It had to be an awesome moment. And, in fact, he, he is so amazing, it caused Adam to break out in, a, in poetry. 
I mean, man, he was over there one minute, like, trying to figure out how to do fire. The next minute, he, like, you know, kind of, like, playing with raccoons and playing fetch. And, you know, he's probably dirty. And, you know, I don't know what all is going on. And all of a sudden, next thing he knows, he sees a woman. And he's inspired to write a song. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This is very, like, this is very sexy and, like, the very beginning of time. And she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Can you imagine like finding that person who completes you whenever you've been surrounded by like rats and cats and dogs all the time? And then verse 24. Therefore a man shall leave his, fa- his mother, his father and mother, and hold fast to his wife And they shall become one flesh, both figuratively and physically, they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife are both naked and not ashamed. So God created man and woman to fit together perfectly in an awesome way, that they would be attracted to each other, that they would desire each other, that they would fit together just perfectly with each other, that, that, that they would be, in the very beginning, that they would be naked with each other and not ashamed. But then the bad news happens. So we're not going to read the whole section, but so you, you guys probably know the story. I'm assuming that you do, that Adam and Eve are chilling in the garden. Everything's good. God said there's only one thing you cannot do, but I'm going to put you in charge of the earth. Go build cities, build nations, come up with like, you know, all kinds of cool things, invent football, go out there and do your deal. Go out and do it, and they're doing it, but all of a sudden, I mean, they're doing it, and they're doing it together in the garden, naked and not ashamed, hanging out with each other in perfect, perfect harmony with each other and with God. And then Satan comes, looks like a serpent, looks like a snake. He asks Eve, did God really say to do this? And she said, no, he said to to do this. And he said not to eat this. And he said, well, he's just really jealous of you because you're going to be like him. And so you should should take the the apple or the pomegranate or whatever it is and eat it. Uh, um, You know, it says it was desirable. It looked good, good. So she took it. She ate it. She gave it to her husband who said he was right there. Her, Her husband was supposed to be like, looking out for her, guarding her, but he's hanging out with her. I mean, he's just like, I, I don't know what he's doing. You know, you, you, I mean, I, I, know what he's, I have no idea what, what he's doing this whole time. But he's distracted. She sins. She hands him the, the fruit. He sins, and all of a sudden, all hell breaks loose on earth. And Adam and Eve, when God gives them the just uh, desserts for what they have done, whenever he hands out the discipline to them, he he inherent in the discipline is saying you guys are going to be fractured because of what you have done because of the fall you guys are going to be fractured and that perfect unity is not going to be attainable because he says to the wife he says to, to Eve your desire will be for your husband we talked about that two weeks ago and it's kind of saying the kind of picture that like you know he's the one that's in the driver's seat like when you're riding with somebody that's kind of a crazy driver but you want to keep reaching over and grabbing the wheel to keep it steady because you don't trust him with the wheel. And he said, that's the way your relationship is going to be because of what you have done is going to be fractured. And that fracture messed up all of our relationships and it messed up our our idea of sex. Our picture of sex has been marred from the very beginning. It's not a recent thing. 
that the past 50 years, like when we've experienced a sexual revolution in the West, in, in America, in Europe, like that's not a new thing, uh, having bad ideas about sex. That goes back to the very, very beginning. We see, in fact, if I could take you forward just a couple of chapters, like crazy weird things are happening, sex, like just like just a, a generation or two after Adam and Eve, some like is really weird stuff going on right off the bat. In fact, the, the, next, the next few verses after this is not just sex. It's talking about how they have a, two sons, Cain and Abel, and one of the sons kills the other son. Like all of society, all of creation is fractured and broken from the very, very beginning. We all, no matter who you are, we have all been marred by this, this broken world's uh, thinking about sex. All of us. So, so let's just like, in this room together, whether you grew up in church, you've been in church a long time, like you, you've had some issues, you overcome them, you're in the middle of issues, let's all like figure out that, that and accept that we're all on the same page. The fact that you and I live in a broken world, have grown up in a broken world, where they were surrounded by this, these thoughts and feelings about sex, that we're surrounded by the sexual energy, the sexually charged society, that we have been marred. Our thinking, our feelings about sex have been marred by living in the broken world that we're in. So if you've been married, freshly married, you've been married 10 years, 20 years, you have marred thinking about sex. If you're single, you're young, you're far away from marriage, you're looking to get married, no matter where you are in the mix, you have marred, messed up thinking about sex. That's just a part of being a human. So what does God say about it? Now that we're in this broken mess, what does God say about it? Let's look at Ephesians 5 back in our, our text today. Verse 1 of Ephesians 5. Therefore, so before, before this section, he was talking about how we've been brought to new life, and so therefore we need to put off the old way and put on the new way. Put off the old way, uh, not because it's a, it's a thing about rules, because it doesn't fit us anymore. Like, like old prison guard, whenever you've been freed, it doesn't fit you anymore. So put it off. In verse 1, he says, therefore, because of that, be imitators of God as beloved children. So he's setting this up when he's getting ready to talk about sex. He, he starts off by reminding us that we are part of a new family. That even though all of us have been marred in our thinking about sex, and some of us have been marred by abuse, some of us have been marred by poor decisions we made in the past, some of us have been marred by the, the circumstances that we were in, things that we were exposed to, things that we have done, things that we have seen. I mean, we don't even know how messed up we are in our thinking about sex, but no matter where, where you are or what, how you've gotten to where you are, he says that you are, if you are a Christian today, you are a part of a new family. There is a break with the old way and a new way of thinking because you're a part of a new family, a new kingdom. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So just kind of put a pin in that phrase, I and mean, that's a key phrase as we're moving ahead and we're talking about sex. He says, 
walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. What does that remind us of that we talked about last week, if you were here? It reminds us about how he, what he said to husbands and how we should love our wives. He says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And so he's saying that as Christians, our relationships with each other should be marked by us constantly sacrificing out of love for each other because we are a part of a new family. Verse 3, with sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness, which is interesting. Like, look at, so he says, but sexual immorality, that's a, a Greek word called pernia or pernia. Uh, it has to do with every, every kind of anything you can think of that's sex outside of marriage, before marriage, extra marriage, s- surrounding, post-marriage, anything you can think of, anything you can think of in this room is included in that. And all impurity or covetousness why does he throw covetousness in there? Isn't that kind of weird? Like, so he's talking about sex. He's like, let all sexual immorality and impurity, and then he throws in there like covetousness. Like, why would he? Why would he do that? It's kind of interesting. Let's move on. Must not even be named among you. So he's saying there is a hard break from the old life that you had to the new life. But there's room in here he's saying that it doesn't happen automatically. He wouldn't have to be writing this to the Ephesians if it happened automatically when you became a believer. Your thinking doesn't automatically change to being a totally like a child of God. You still have all this messed up thinking about sex in there. But he's saying that it, it must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. So that there should be, there should be, there should be a, a break that is leading to a greater break, really. Verse 4, let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partakers with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are what? You are light in the Lord. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. So we all have been marred by this world's thinking. We come into belief, as believers, we're new creations. Things have changed. And, but, but yet we still have this kind of messed up thing about all kinds of things, including sex. And sex is huge in our culture because we live in a, a sexually charged culture. It, is, it surrounds us all. All the time. You watch a football game and they are selling everything with sex. They sell razors with sex. I don't even know how they made that jump. They sell, they sell tires with sex. They sell cars with sex. They sell anything that they can find out, any kind of hook. You may not even see a connection, but they sell it with sex. It's just the, the, the society that we're in, the culture that we're in is charged. They say that, I did a study recently 
and that nine out of 10, nine out of 10 children between the ages of 12 and 16 have seen porn. Nine out of 10 kids between 12 and 16. The number one user of porn online, which by the way, the porn industry, larger than the NBA, NFL, hockey, college football, all combined into one. It's a huge industry. It's worldwide. It's not just America. It is worldwide. That's the porn industry. Nine out of ten kids, the, the biggest consumer, uh, the average biggest consumer of porn online is, is a 14-year-old boy, I believe. 14 years old. He may not have even hit puberty yet, 14 years old. That's, that's the society we're in. But are we just going to sit around and like bemoan that's where society is? Or are we going to accept that we as Christians have been surrounded that, by that ourselves and our thinking has changed. Our thinking has been affected. So let's, let's think about different ways that we in this room and people in general can think about sex and what God has to say about it. So some of us think about sex as a prize. Sex is a prize to be won. So it, if, uh, if the, the point at the end of the of, of Playing, you play a game of skee-ball, and you, the, the point is to get as many tickets as you possibly can. So you want to get the, the ball, and it's kind of tricky because you want to get it high. But if you get it high, it's like a really small target. And, but you want to get as many, many, many tickets as you possibly can. That's the goal because you're going to take those tickets, you turn them in, and buy something that's really cheap at the counter. You could have bought like at the dollar store for a lot cheaper than spend all the time, but you got to play skee-ball. But that's the prize. That's what you're aiming for. It's some, some of us view sex in that same way. That sex is a prize to be won. That I can use my skills and my abilities, I can pour them in so that I can see, so I can get it back, so I can win the prize. I can, I can take the ball across the finish line, and that is sex at the end. So for those of us that have that kind of thinking, sex is like a game, it's like a contest, and it, it's just as much or more about taking the ball across the finish line than it is actually about this actual sex act itself. So when we, and it's typically guys that think this way, but it could be women as well, that you, you think about like, I wanna get as many women as I possibly can, and I'm gonna hone my skills so that I'm able to win it as a prize. Sex is a prize, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hone my skills and I'm gonna, I'm gonna win the prize at the end. I'm gonna push the ball down the field and cross, the, cross that goal line. And it's the act of crossing that goal line like I won that makes me feel like, wow, yes, nailed it. Probably not a good ter- term. Yes, got it, I did it. Just pretend I didn't do that. Uh, another way that we, we tend to, that some of us think about sex is we think about sex as a weapon. Sex as a weapon. And this could be in, in several different ways, but, but one way, and some of us in this room have either been victims of this or we have maybe perpetuated this, and that is that, that, that we, some of us have been victims of people who use sex as a weapon against us. And they, they cross barriers with us that they should not have crossed for their own pleasure, even though they know it was hurting you. That's gratuitous violence. You know, when you just want to kill somebody just to, to watch them die because it gives you pleasure, we call that, like, we call that sadistic, and that's sadistic sex. And some of us in this room have been victims of that. 
and you've experienced sex as a weapon. So, of course, that's going to mar the way you think about sex for the future. When you think about being a husband or a wife, it's going to, make, it's going to change the way that you think about sex. Another way sex can be used as a weapon is um, it could be women, women, women or men. I think women more often fall into this, but it's, uh, it can be uh, a way to get somebody to do what you want them to do. It's a weapon to make them, to threaten them, to make them do what you want to do. So if, if your husband's not doing something you like for him to do, then you threaten him, I'm not going to give you sex. It's a weapon. Or, hey, you... you if, if you do this, I will do this. If you do this, I won't do it. So you, you try to herd your, your husband into doing what you want him to do because you had the weapon of sex. It's like you, you, you don't feel like you can get him to do what, he, what you feel that he needs to do any other way, but he'll respond to that. And so you, you jab him with that weapon of sex back and forth. Another, another way that some of us view about sex, so some of, some of us it's, it's a prize to be won. Some of us it's a weapon to be yielded or that has been yielded against us. And some of us it's a power trip. It's not so much just a, a prize, but sex gives me power over somebody else. Sex, sex, gives, me, sex gives me control over somebody else. That, that, that the idea that, that, I, that, I, that I sexually control somebody and make them do what I want them to do gives me a power rush. And so maybe in other areas of my life, I don't feel like I'm in control. I don't feel like I have it together. Maybe at work, things are like... Uh, it's not the way I want it to work out, and just in general, things don't work well, but in the bedroom, I'm in control in there, and that gives me a sense of power and control because of what happens there. It's not even, it, it's, it's not, it's, it's as much about that as it is about the actual pleasure that you get at the moment of sex. Another way that some of us think about sex is we think about it as an escape, a, a way to get away from the world, a way to get away from the reality of life. And so that could be in real sex with somebody or it could be online because it's so easy. Like, and I t- definitely understand this. Like, life is tough. Things are going hard. You, you don't really like what you're, you're looking around the house. You don't like what you're looking at. You don't know. But you got this one place that you can go. You can go online. You can look at these pictures. You can look at these videos. You can do this deal. And then it's escape from reality. It's a place where you can be in your own world of your own making where the women or the men look like you want them to look and things happen the way you want it to happen and it's a, a safe place, an escape place for you. And maybe it's the real deal. Maybe it's just like you're, you're running around because you're so, you're, you're, so, you're so generally sad if you're actually to admit how you feel about yourself and about your life that if you can constantly be out bagging somebody, getting them in bed with you, then it's an escape with you that you feel at that moment like things are right. But when you wake up in the morning, you wonder, like, what am I doing with my life? Some of us view sex as a prize, as a weapon, as power or control. Some of us view it as a, um, an escape. Some of us use it, view it as a, just an animalistic function. Like, it's just something I got to do. That's what, kind of what we hit on before. Like, it's just an appetite I have, and I have to find some way to release it. So just like I get up in the morning, the first thing I'm looking for is a bathroom, and the next thing I'm looking for is something to eat. Like, that's just a part of the deal. I just got to find a release. It's just an animalistic function. Another way we view about sex is we think about it as a, as a necessary evil. A necessary evil. 
Maybe, maybe that's because uh, you've had bad sexual experiences or you've had a, a bad model of sex to you or for some reason you had this kind of that distasteful uh, thing that we were talking about before, kind of the Platonism idea that like spiritual is good, the physical is bad, and sex is inherently kind of bad and dirty. And so that you just view it like, okay, it's a necessary evil. Like I have to do this in order to have kids, or I have to do this in order to keep my husband pleased or my wife pleased. I, I don't like it because maybe you were abused as a child or at some point, and so you have a marred idea about sex, and you it's, it's a legitimate reason that you have a bad idea about sex, bad thinking about sex but you view it as just a necessary evil, something that you have to kind of grin and bear it, grit your teeth and make it through it. And some of us see sex as acceptance, that I don't really feel comfortable with myself. I don't feel self-assured in myself. I don't have a a good sense of identity of myself, but if I can get women to turn their heads at me or guys to turn their heads at me, then I'm accepted. If I have women that show sexual interest in me or guys that show sexual interest in me, then I'm accepted with people. And the more people I have that show me sexual interest, the more I feel accepted with people. And that's where I get my identity from. And that's the last thing we're going to talk about is that some of us have sex as identity. And we've based our identity off um, either our sexual preference or our sexual ability, things that we have done, mounts that we've climbed, women that we've gotten in our bed or men that we've gotten in our bed, like prizes on the wall. It's like we wrap up our identity into sex. We bring that into marriage. We bring that into relationships. All of us have been marred by the, the broken world's thinking about sex, and we bring that into our relationships. We bring that into our thinking about future relationships. But at the core of all of those ideas, here's the problem. The problem is that we either view sex as God or we view sex as a way to worship ourselves. Because think about that list in Ephesians. What did he compare or he lists in with sexual immorality? With sexual immorality, in all, verse 3, and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you. And then jumping down to verse 5, for you may be sure that of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So the core, at the very base of whatever bad thinking that you and I have about sex, it may be as an escape, or maybe as a weapon, it may be as a, a prize to be won, it may be just an animalistic function, acceptance, identity, whatever the base that you bring in your ideas about sex into your relationship, into your marriage, in pre- preparation for your marriage, whatever marred ideas you and I have about sex, at the core of that, is a worship problem. See, your problem about, with sex and my problem with sex is really a worship problem. It's the fact that you and I are taught by our society to worship at, in the temple of sex. That, that sex is the God that promises that it will give you pleasure and purpose and fulfillment and identity in your life. And we worship that God and we chase that idol and then when we get married or we become a Christian, we bring those, th- these, those thoughts into being a Christian. We bring those thoughts into our marriage, and we want our mate to worship that God the same way that we worship it. And there's fracture there. 
because she's not comfortable doing this or he's not comfortable doing this or she doesn't want to do it all or he doesn't understand this or uh, I, I re- he, she views it like she holds it over me all the time and I resent that and you, there's all this back and forth all the time. The problem with that, the core, core of that isn't the fact that you need to have sex more or less often if you're a married couple or, or that you just need to not have sex if you're not single. The problem is that you and I worship at the idol of sex. And we have bought into the lie that sex offers us happiness and pleasure and identity and acceptance. And sex is a poor God. Sex is a poor God because it does not deliver on its promises. I don't know a single guy who has gotten into pornography at all that like stays at the light stuff, right? you perpetually get further and further and further. Why? Because sex doesn't, it just doesn't answer like it used to answer. Then I need more and more and more and more. That's why we're not content with one woman. That's why we're not content with keeping in our pants until we are married. That's why we're not content when we are married. If you, if you had every single, I heard, I heard a guy on, on the radio one time, it wasn't a Christian thing, they were asking like, if you could choose, a, this is a great party question by the way, they asked if you could choose a superpower and you had to choose between flight or invisibility, you could fly super fast or you could be invisible, which would you choose? And I had a guy who said, I, to be honest, I think I would choose invisibility, but I don't think it would be good for me. And they said, Why? He said, because no matter how many naked women I see, I want to see more. And that's true. Sex is a poor God because it never offers satisfaction. It never offers fulfillment. It never delivers on the promises that it makes. Sex is a poor God. We worship at that idol and that temple. And we're surrounded. Our thoughts and feelings have been marred and affected by it. Some of us, it's not sex that we're worshiping, it's ourselves. Sex is a tool in order for me to worship myself and for the people around me to worship me. I want all the world to revolve around me. I want the people in my life to revolve around me. And sex is my way to do that. Sex is a tool for me to feel strong and independent. When I see people respond to me, their heads turn to me, then I'm at the center of the universe for that moment. I'm in charge. And I use sex and my relationship with other people in order to get them to worship me. I get my wife to do things that she doesn't want to do, that she's not comfortable with, because I want to please myself, and she should worship me the way I worship me, and sex is the way that we do that. But that's not the picture of the way that we should view sex. I wish we had time to talk about it in depth, and this is what I want you guys to talk about in your community groups and over lunch or over the week or find somebody that you trust to talk about. But the, I, God's picture of sex is two people who are committed to each other because it's only in true commitment and covenant with each other that you can trust somebody, that they're not gonna be gone in the morning because you know you're covenanted together. 
And it's not about what I can get from somebody else because I want you to worship me and help me to worship sex, but it's about how can I sacrifice for you, for your pleasure and your enjoyment, for your joy. That's what he said here. When he says that sexual immorality and impurity is idolatry. And so whenever I have that kind of thinking about sex and I bring that kind of thinking into my relationships with uh, other women or men or whatever the situation here is with, with people I'm dating or with my wife or husband, then I'm asking them to help, help me worship sex or worship me by using sex. And the idea is that I should follow the example of Jesus, verse 1, be imitators of God as beloved children, verse 2, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. The picture of sex that God paints for us is a picture of two people in covenant relationship with each other who are not seeking to fulfill their own desires by using their partner, but are selflessly giving themselves up to their partner for the glory of God. Let me paint this picture for you. If you have two people who are doing that in a relationship, sexually, how is that going to look? It's going to be fireworks. It's going to be the music. It's going to be the slow motion. It's going to be like that movie scene, though marriage sex, let's just be honest, is not like the, the movie sex. Like You're going to be very disappointed if you think if that's your picture of what sex looks like in marriage because it does not look like that. They have a whole team of people making them look like that and making things flow very smoothly. And they have a script that says that you will respond like this in this moment, you'll respond like this in this moment. It rarely, there are a few moments where just like everything lines up and it, it kind of happens like that. Most times it's like, it's kind of clumsy, it's kind of weird. It's, hey, would you stop and go brush your teeth? Or, hey, what's going on here? Or, you know, this isn't working. Like, it's, you, somebody falls off the bed. Like, things aren't, it doesn't quite work like it's supposed to, like, you, well, like we see on the movies. But if you have two people in a committed covenant relationship with each other who are sacrificing their desires for the other person's desires and they're both doing that, that's going to be amazing because you're both, both of your needs are going to be met, both of your desires are going to be met because you're constantly, constantly looking out for each other. You're constantly uh, sacrificing yourself for them and you find you find that the purpose of sex wasn't for them to serve you but it's for you to serve them and you find pleasure in serving your partner not in that your needs are met but you find pleasure in serving and loving your partner and it's a safe place because you're committed and covenanted together just as the way that God is covenanted to us through the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ. And that's the picture that we've been talking about that marriage is supposed to paint. It, it showcases God's love for us and our love for God. In the actual sex act, it showcases the ecstasy that we are going to, because that, that moment is ecstasy. It showcases the ecstasy that we're going to experience when we are united 
as the bride of Christ to the groom. And that'll give you something to look forward to when it comes to eternity, right? Like not little like cherubs like playing harps up in, up in the clouds, but an eternity of ecstasy that sex is just a, a poor shadow of pointing to the future. That'll be awesome. So as we get ready to take communion, we finish up the service, let's just, uh, whatever you're thinking about sex is, let's just accept we are all, all of our thinking about sex is marred, but let's, as we approach the table, as we get ready, as we close out the service, I want you to think about personally, how is your thinking about sex marred? And then whatever that way is, repent of that. As you come to the table, come to the table as an act of repentance to God for having your thinking that you have worshipped sex and you've asked people around you to worship yourself by using sex. And then let's experience his grace towards us, his forgiveness for us, no matter what your past is, that's forgiveness for you. And then experience his empowering presence in your life to help you to change. Because the picture that we're painting is not something that you can do on your own. It's only something that can happen by the power and work of Jesus Christ by his spirit in our hearts. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.